Welcome to Craftlit, the podcast for crafters who love books. My name is Heather Ordover, and I'm podcasting from where the Delaware River meets the Old York Road, New Hope, Pennsylvania. Episode 514, Beware Sudden Squalls. This episode of Craftlit is brought to you by its listeners. Many thanks and much gratefulness to all of the listeners who have gone over to patreon.com slash craftlet and pledged their support to the show. We couldn't do it without you. Thank you. Well, hello. How are you? I am well. For those of you listening in real time, I apologize. Things have been a little hectic and my computer fought back. (laughs) The one that has all the recording equipment connected to it. There was an update recently that did something evil to everything. So since I don't have tons of free time, it took me a little while to get it all together. But together, I did get it. And here I am recording for you. So, sudden squalls. We have some heading our way. We won't get to those squalls yet today, but we will have an inkling of what some of them might be about. We don't have a whole ton of stuff to go through beforehand. I'm looking at my notes beforehand. There are some words that are kind of odd that we'll go through, but we do have some voicemails which I wanted to share with you. So first, from Tara. Hi, Heather. It's Tara Worcester again, showing that my brain is crazy. The term niggardly was used in the same book where they talked, we had a conversation about getting the tallow from a flea. I don't, I can't, I keep thinking little woman or little women and I'm like, no, no, that's not right. What book was it? Shoot, it's not little women and it's not bleak, not bleak house, uh, Jane Eyre. I can't put my finger on the ruddy book but it's the same book where they talk about getting the tallow from a flea someone who's being miserly Uh, it's in there it's in there somewhere i will find it someone will find it anyway i'm enjoying a rainy fall day with a big bowl of creamy chicken noodle soup and a honking huge slice of your aunt's bread uh, banana bread, and tuning in to the latest chapters of Treasure Island. I can't wait to listen to them, Heather. I hope you're having a great day. Bye. Tara, I do love the way your brain works. I have no idea what book you're talking about, but like you, I am positive somebody else who's listening will, and they will write back, because I just went on, and while you were talking, and while I was listening, I googled tallow from a flea, and found... The reference was that trying to get skin and tallow from a flea would be kind of difficult. But no reference to texts that it was used in that were familiar to me. There were other texts that it was referring to, like the way the Oxford English Dictionary does. Ooh, I have an OED now behind me. Let's see if I can find something there. And no, no, I couldn't because the reason I have it is because it's old. Er. And it does not have 
that reference. So I think we should rely on the kindness of strangers, or maybe not so strange people, just our people, and see if they can remember what book it showed up in. Little Women was actually one of my guesses, too, and and now I'm with you. I think no. So <clears throat> interesting that you're also having the banana bread because, boy, have I had a hankering for some banana bread lately, which is funny because it's apple season and you would think it would be all apple. I made an apple brown Betty not too long ago. If you have never made an apple brown Betty, it's kind of like making a French apple pie in a cast iron skillet without the crust. So for those of us who cannot have pie crust, traditional normal pie crust, it's great. And for those of us who could have it, but don't want to add the extra carbs, it's also great. Okay, be honest with me. You could hear the dog, couldn't you? <laughs> Did I tell you that we have a dog? We have a dog. You remember way back when we left Arizona, we had to find a, a new dog family for our two dogs, Rosie and Amber. And it was traumatic and very difficult, but we did. The universe literally dropped a solution in my lap on the way, I'm not kidding, to the Humane Society with the dogs in the backseat. It was extraordinary. So a few months ago, one of the moms in our mom squad had texted everybody saying they had just found out that they couldn't take their dog with them to the place they were going to be in Florida. I think her husband's a dean of students. and so. They were going to be in housing that they found out was not going to be doggy friendly. So she had to find a new home for her doggy in a hurry. And to me, that was a clue <laughs> that, aha, well, this is our opportunity to pay back the gift we were given when we found a new home for Rosie and Amber. Thing two was absolutely on board with me. The rest of the family was not. So we did a test run and we prevailed. And now this dog is more devoted to Andrew than any... I didn't know it was this possible for a non-speaking being to communicate so clearly with its eyes the words, I love you so much, all the time, all day, every day. And when he's not here, he's traveling right now, she stays on his side of the bed. For the first couple days, though, she won't stay on his side of the bed. She'll stay on my side of the bed, body blocking me off of my side, hoping that he's going to come back. She and I get along fine, <laughs> but that level of devotion is really quite spectacular. So she was just barking because my son's friends came over to prepare for a music video that they are making for a friend. I have no idea. This is what happens when you have 15 and 16-year-olds. So there's that. We have another voicemail from Jana Lee. Hi, Jana Lee. It's been a while since I've heard from you. So Jana Lee has some information for us about talking to strangers. Here we go. Hi, Heather. This is Jana Lee, um, Nits and Hikes on Ravelry. I just finished chapters 24, 25, and 26 of Treasure Island listening to it. And um, I was struck by an interesting thought. I'm also reading uh, another book right now called Talking to Strangers, and it's by Malcolm Gladwell. And one of the things that he's studying is how we uh, default to truth when we interact with people. Even when we think they might not be telling the truth, our default is always to expect the best of them and always to expect. And he goes into why evolutionary that's a thing and, and why it's more um why it's better for us to think that way. But 
one of the things that I was thinking about um, because he brought it up is that speaking when we have um, characters or characters in movies, they always act and behave um, as if their inside and their outside are the same. So if they're inwardly a deceiver or a liar or whatever, then outwardly there's always signs that you can see. You know, if, if they're visual signs because it's a television or movie show um, thing, or there's um, written signs like when Israel Hounds has the shifty eyes and he can't meet and he's pausing and, and Jim is picking up on that. And I thought how interesting it was that even as far back as Robert Louis Stevenson, when we would write characters, we write them to be true to who they are inside. Um, so Jim is this honest boy and, and thoughtful but smart, and Israel is a deceiver because he's a pirate, and so he lies and he, he tries to kill Jim even though Jim's a boy. Um, but I thought how interesting it was that as as I'm listening, that um, people aren't always like that. And so sometimes in our interactions we'll have a um, a between what they say and the behavior that accompanies their words. So anyway, just a thought. I'm really enjoying this book, and and I'm I'm having so much fun with the with the reader and with your comments. So um, thank you, and bye. Oh, Janelle, if I had paid you cash money to call in with that message, you couldn't have timed it more perfectly. That is spectacular, both for something that's going to happen this week, and several things that are going to happen next week. So, everyone, pay attention to what Jen Lee said. Malcolm Gladwell's book, Talking to Strangers, Characters' Behavior, our uh, leading with the trust belief that we believe that the person who is presenting themselves to us is presenting them themselves to us honestly, and that there are always hints and signs as to whether or not that is true. And I will say, there are always hints and signs as to whether or not that is true, with the possible exception of one character. And we'll get into that more next week. We won't have a chance to do much with that this week, but that's okay too. And then we have a voicemail from Julie. So, hey, Julie, here we go. Hi, Heather. This is Julie in, um, in New York. Um, thank you so much for, for your podcast. I'm so glad you're back. Um, I wanted to make a comment about about Jim and Jim's motivation. Um, he seems like such a smart and confident kid, um, which I think we don't really know in the beginning when he seems very much under the uh, influence of all the adults in his life, and he's so easily taken in by Silver. Of course, everyone else is too. Um, but he seems to grow in street smarts as the book goes on. But what I was kind of repeatedly jarred by is his um, the question of his motivation. He seems to just jump into things without even thinking, without um, with, and it's hard to understand why. There's no rhyme or reason, like when he jumps into the boat with the pirates going to Treasure Island, or when he suddenly leaves the stockade, as as awful as things were there. Or even when he jumps out of the coracle into the Hispaniola um, without really thinking. He sees his chance and he takes it. Um, but it seems kind of jarring. But then I thought of um, a cartoon I saw some years ago. Um, it, it shows a mouse that's looking at a trap 
It's cocked and loaded with cheese. And the caption underneath says, teenage mouse. And the thought bubble going to the mouse's head says, I could totally do this. So maybe that is the best uh, explanation of Jim's motivation is that he's just a teenager. Um, so um, and then another comment I just had was the theme of, of rebellion against authority, which seemed very, very modern to me. Um, it's, you know, he's every, every, he's polite and the adults are all polite, so the good ones anyway. Um, but, but the underlying statement is that the boy is the one that knows best and the adults don't necessarily um, know what they're doing. Um, so I thought that was, that was kind of a modern and surprising theme in there. And just last thing is I, I ended up looking at YouTubes of people making coracles, and they're quite amazing, and they start with like a basket. Um, so I don't know if you had mentioned that, but there's some, some good uh, YouTube videos out there about how to make your own coracle. Um, so, again, thanks so much, and I'm, I'm so happy you're back again. Bye. Well, it's just a bonanza of well-timed calls, isn't it? Because, Julie, you have really hit a particular nail on its head in two places. One, the first one, having kind of a, a jarring reaction to uh, Jim doing really stupid stuff. Because he does. He does really stupid stuff all the way along. So if you put this into the, the framework of uh, a quest story... You have the mysterious stranger coming and basically letting the young person, in this case Jim, know that there is this adventure, this quest that's out there. And that would be Billy Bones. And then you lose the mysterious stranger and there's a, a guardian, a threshold guardian that is trying to keep you from pursuing this quest. And that would be Pew and all of the bad guys who come after, um, who are so nasty to Jim. So they really try to dissuade him from crossing them from not doing what they want, which is to get the map from Billy Bones. Then you have your young hero attached to the first helper, the, the person who is going to help them on this quest, help them to, if this is a coming of age kind of quest, which it kind of looks like is what we have, then it would be moving forward into kind of adulthood. And at first, it looks like that's going to be probably not Squire Trelawney and maybe Dr. Livesey, but kind of not because he's really not paying a ton of attention to Jim. I mean, he's being helpful and all, but there's no like, I, Jim, I was like you when I was a lad, which is what you do get from Long John Silver. So that's interesting. His first real test, however, is when he's in the apple barrel and he hears the bad news that Long John Silver is not a person to be trusted. Up until this time, as we were talking about, he absolutely believed that Long John Silver was exactly who Long John Silver said he was. He was a cook. He was barbecue. He was a, a pub owner. He was a seafaring man who had, because of the tragic loss of his leg in service to the king, had had to stop sailing and stay on the land. But for this, for this one trip, he was willing to go back. So Jim had, after that first test, if he had failed the test, 
then the story would be over. If he'd, if he'd failed the test, he could have been dead. But instead, he gets invited into the room with the men. And the men offer him a glass of wine. And I think there's even a second glass of wine involved then. And that is his initiation. It's okay. You are going to now be an initiate into this process by which you will grow up and stop doing stupid things, Jim. And then more tests to prove that he is worthy of winning, of making it to the end of this quest. One would be sticking it out in the stockade. Man, that had to be terrifying because they are back to back with each other, but they are in many ways kind of sitting ducks inside the stockade. And, and if the pirates had been smarter or less sick, because what were they doing staying down in the bad air? Mal, Aria, bad air. They didn't know it was the mosquitoes that are attracted to the bad air space, but both yellow fever and malaria, as we know it today, you can get it in the same places. So that certainly weakened the pirates somewhat, but still, it was a pretty major test for a kid. He's 13-ish years old kid. He has the, the fight at the stockade, the going out, at, first off, getting the coracle, going out in the coracle, figuring out what was going on with the Hispaniola, figuring out how not to cut it loose, cutting it loose properly, and then when he realizes he's kind of up a creek without a paddle, literally, <laughs> he only despairs briefly. He keeps thinking. He comes up with an idea. He gets on the Hispaniola. He gets rid of his real hands. The whole bit. He gets wounded in service of this quest. Today, you are going to see what I think of as the final test, the are you a man test. And that's kind of exciting. So we've got that to look forward to. So on, on that level, Julie, I think Jim's kind of going off half-cocked and making decisions that you look at and go, why would you do that? 100% teen boy brain. The frontal lobe is just not completely cooked yet. And for some guys, it takes them till they're 25. So that's not a huge surprise. This is why having young men driving with only six months of practice is really statistically not a great idea. There's that. But there's also that Robert Louis Stevenson needed Jim to do several of these things in order to move the story along. He, he wrote himself into corners where, well, how are we going to get out of this one? I know, we'll have Jim do something stupid that'll let him get to a place where he can do the thing that I need him to do. So because Stevenson is such a great writer, he may have been pushed in a particular direction because of the needs of fiction and the genre, but because he's a great writer, he made it work and work on a, a psychological ground that is solid, just like with Jekyll and Hyde. And I know I've mentioned overly sarcastic productions before. It's a YouTube channel. Um, recommending it again because they did a very interesting version of Jekyll and Hyde. Now, as a reminder and a warning, overly sarcastic productions does a short-ish rundown, like a, a verbal summary, a very fast verbal summary of the, the plot. But as she's going through the plot, she is also doing a lot of craft lady kind of things where she is giving uh, context for different things that are happening. Uh, sometimes it's sociological context. Sometimes it's historical context. Sometimes it's psychological context. 
Sometimes she's bringing in other pieces of literature from the same time period that contradict or support what's going on in the text that she is focusing on. I thought she did a great job with Jekyll and Hyde. So that was fun. And that came out pretty recently. So let's see, it's, it came out in October 2019. There's another thing about the rebellion versus authority. And I know way back in the beginning, I said, I'm not going to give you the whole biography of Robert Louis Stevenson, because downloading a whole big biography into your brain is not always the most effective thing. And I'm really glad I held off on doing a lot of it until now, because this is going to make so much more sense. The rebellion versus authority thing that you picked up on, Julie, and that I'm sure plenty of, of other listeners have been kind of going, you know, that's kind of weird. It makes perfect sense when you know this. Stevenson was raised in a fairly strict Calvinist Scottish family in Edinburgh. They had money. His father was a, a lighthouse engineer, builder, like he designed lighthouses and, and other things. But Robert was expected to go into the same business. He didn't. He wound up standing for the bar. He, he passed the bar exam. He was going to be a lawyer. And then, yeah, kind of not. So he was, he was a hippie before there were hippies. I think if he had known him and could have, he probably would have hung out with Oscar Wilde and then probably gotten kind of sick of Oscar Wilde, but would have been able to keep up with him. I think that's where I'm going. Because Robert Louis Stevenson was well known for being funny, fast, sincere, really crazy smart, and sickly. We know all of that. What doesn't get talked about a lot is his relationship with his family, which was very complicated. There was, I'm sure, a certain amount of guilt that was going on, uh, especially from his mother, because he was so sickly. She had been sickly as well. So they're constantly moving all over the place, trying to find the right climate to keep him alive. He had, you know, movie-wasting disease. There's a lot of theories about whether it was tuberculosis or something else. Either way, his lungs didn't work so good is what it comes down to, you know? They just don't do so good. And he struggled with that his entire life. Um, he did fairly well in southern Italy. So climate, yes. That said, even though his family was paying lots of money for him to live well, go to school, travel everywhere, admittedly, in order to try and keep him alive, there was a complicated authority-centered relationship going on, especially between Robert Louis Stevenson and his father. I don't know that it was ever really resolved happily. I think peace was made. Because, of course, eventually Robert Louis Stevenson goes off on his own traveling, including to the United States, winds up in San Francisco, penniless in San Francisco, not a great place to be penniless in, winds up meeting this American woman who at the time was still married, who then becomes a divorcee. And that's the woman who he marries? I mean, not only is she divorced, but she's an American? How low could he go? I mean, this is really, this is pushing the limits for him to bring home his bride, a divorced American woman, and her son, the son for whom and with whom he wrote Treasure Island. He wrote the beginning and maybe the outline of Treasure Island with, with their son. But there is no question, if you look at the biography of his life, and then if you look at, again, Jekyll and Hyde, there's a, a very strong, constant pushing 
against authority, testing the limits, not liking to be pigeonholed in any particular way into expectations of behavior. And in fact, today, you are going to see a character who you would never have expected this change of personality from. The reasons are absolutely sound, and it completely fits their character. But I remember my jaw dropped the first time I hit this part. So I can't wait. Okay, thank you to the callers. Your, your voicemails were so perfectly timed, so thank you. I wanted to tell you about one other podcast. It's called Obscure, and it is not safe for carpools, so NSFC. You don't want to play this in front of children because there is some swearing from time to time. If you are old enough and if you watched Comedy Central in its early days, you might recall a ridiculous but very heartwarming in the strangest ways variety show called Viva Variety with Monsieur Lapin and his ex-wife, <laughs> Madame Lapin, and a guy named Johnny Blue Jeans, who also was French and thought he was being a really wild American guy. There is a podcast right now called Obscure, where Michael Ian Black, formerly Johnny Blue Jeans, is reading Jude the Obscure and commenting on it as he goes. In the beginning of the podcast, he really didn't know what he was going to do. He didn't know how this was going to pan out. He's never read the book. The book was in his uh, family's bookshelves because his wife had read it when she was in school. And somehow he just got it stuck in his craw that this was something he needed to do. What I have found fascinating listening to him is you get an opportunity to watch something kind of like Craftlet get built, but in a much shorter span of time than the 12, 13 years of, of Craftlet. It's all truncated into just these episodes for Obscure. You also get to watch somebody lose the persona. I mean, he's, he is an actor and he is a performer and you can hear in his voice and he's very upfront about it. He talks about insecurities. He talks about how he's the best thing since sliced bread. He, he veers back and forth wildly from these polar ends and it's always in service to comedy, which honestly is a blessing because he's reading Jude the Obscure by Thomas Hardy. This is not a fun, happy-go-lucky book. His commentary on the book is where it can get kind of obscene and also very funny. In Sometimes it's in a Mad Magazine kind of way. Sometimes it's in a National Lampoon kind of way. And, and sometimes it's just crazy. But there are some really sad, disturbing turning points in Jude the Obscure. And he's never read it before. So he's reading it with you, with me, with us. And hearing his honest reactions to shocking things happening in the text makes all of the rest of the irreverence, to me anyway, forgivable. Because there are, the, there are those moments that you just have to believe that that's his true self. And the front is a front because it's a job. And it's psychologically how he's managed to survive. He gets to be funny. That's great. But there's a real person under there. And then the first, I don't know, somewhere in the first 10 episodes or so, he had his wife and his children come on the podcast. And they're very clearly uncomfortable with the whole concept. But he, he kind of makes them get on the podcast. Well, his wife shows up again towards the end. Because we're almost 
to the end of the book, so you'd be able to blast through the whole thing now without having to wait. When she shows up again, that was the moment when I decided I was going to tell you guys about Obscure. It just, again, going back to this idea of, uh, that generally mentioned the Malcolm Gladwell book, that we default to the truth with strangers, and we believe that what we're getting from strangers is the truth. It's that kind of moment. And especially when you're surrounded by all of the stuff that's going on in Jude the Obscure, it's really quite lovely. So it's an odd podcast. It is not what I had expected, but I never would have read Jude the Obscure if I hadn't had it read to me by Michael Ian Black. So if you're interested, give it a listen. Give it a couple episodes, because like I said, he has to kind of figure out how he's going to do it. And, um... And and let me know what you think. It's an interesting one. All right. Treasure Island. Today we have chapters 30 and 31. Next episode will be chapters 32, 33, and 34, and that will be the end of the book. But for today, we have chapter 30, On Parole, and chapter 31, Flint's Pointer. So, we have some interesting vocabulary, actually, this, this week. New border, because you're not reading this book on paper, you, like me, may not have noticed that Robert Louis Stevenson forces the reader to talk like a pirate. So instead of somebody who is newly living aboard a ship, a new border, like a newbie, instead of being spelled N-E-W, border, it's N-O-O, border. So it forces you to say the double O like a pirate. So you get new border. N-E-W could have been pronounced differently and and still in some accents in the UK will be pronounced slightly differently. I am not going to pretend that I can do it for you. I will let your imagination take over. But Robert Louis Stevenson is doing this all the way through the book. He is phonetically teaching us to speak like pirates, which is kind of cool. A squall, the name of the episode, Beware Sudden Squalls. Squalls are storms that kind of come out of nowhere, hit real hard, and then go away. So that's a squall. Sealed orders. We've probably come across something like this before, but I wanted to emphasize it. This is where you have made an agreement to follow orders, and those orders are sealed. You are not the person who gets to unseal them. Those orders remain sealed until you get to where you're going and hand those orders off to somebody else at which point they get to read it. You may never know what you were doing. Kind of like the Count of Monte Cristo with the letter to Napoleon kind of thing. So, sealed orders. Fried junk. Sounds so gross. It probably is. Fried salt pork. Yeah. (sighs) Um, A thwart. Not a thwart, A-T-H-W-A-R-T, but a space T-H-W-A-R-T, thwart. The thwart is the seat that goes widthwise across, say, a a canoe or a small rowboat. So it's the seat that the rower would sit on, depending on which kind of configuration you have. So if you have a broken thwart, there's really nowhere for the rower to sit, which means they're probably going to be on their knees, which would be lousy. Uh, That'd be really miserable. So that's what a thwart is. Marish is marshy. It's an old way to say marshy land would be marish land. Broom is just shrubbery, kind of scratchy, scratchy ground cover. And, oh, 
there is one other thing that I wanted you to know what it meant before we started. And that is the phrase gammon. There are two parts to the phrase. I'll gammon that doctor, blah, 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 blah. Or I'll aisle his boots with brandy. Aisle is maybe a version of oil, but it's spelled I-L-E. But really what's being said here is I'll gammon that doctor. Gammoning is on a ship uh, lashing something down tightly. So I will have control of that doctor if I have to aisle his boots with brandy. If I have to do something ridiculous and expensive, something that you would never do, taking good brandy and pouring it on somebody's boots to, well, to try and make them waterproof, which wouldn't work very well, but to, to shine them up. So it's, it is literally a double header of an, I will do anything to keep that guy, keep that guy on my side, keep control of that guy, keep him where I want him. That's what that means. And with that, I think we're good. Phew, that was a lot. Okay, here we go with chapters 30 and 31 of Treasure Island by Robert Louis Stevenson. Chapter 30. On Parole. I was wakened, indeed we were all wakened, for I could see even the sentinel shake himself together from where he had fallen against the doorpost, by a clear, hearty voice hailing us from the margin of the wood. "'Blockhouse, ahoy!' it cried. "'Here's the doctor!' And the doctor it was. Although I was glad to hear the sound, yet my gladness was not without admixture. I remembered with confusion my insubordinate and stealthy conduct, and when I saw where it had brought me, among what companions and surrounded by what dangers, I'd felt ashamed to look him in the face. He must have risen in the dark, for the day had hardly come, and when I ran to a loophole and looked out, I saw him standing, like silver once before, up to the mid-leg in creeping vapour. "'You, doctor, top of the morning to you, sir,' cried Silver, broad awake and beaming with good nature in a moment. "'Bright and early, to be sure, and it's the early bird, as the saying goes, against the rations. George, shake up your timbers, son, and help Dr. Livesey over the ship's side. All a doing well, your patience was all well and merry.' So he patted on, standing on the hilltop, with his crutch under his elbow, and one hand upon the side of the log-house, quite the old John in voice, manner, and expression. "'We've quite a surprise for you, too, sir,' he continued. "'We've got a little stranger here, hee-hee, <laughs> a new boarder and lodger, sir, and looking fit and taunt as a fiddle. Slept like a supercargo, we did, right alongside of John. Stem to stem we was all night.' Dr. Livesey was by this time across the stockade, and pretty near the cook, and I could hear the alternation in his voice as he said, "'Not Jim. The very same Jim as ever was,' said Silver. The doctor stopped outright, although he did not speak, and it was some seconds before he seemed able to move on. "'Well, well,' he said at last, "'duty first and pleasure afterwards, as you might have said yourself, Silver. Let us overhaul these patients of yours.' 
A moment afterwards he had entered the blockhouse, and, with one grim nod to me, proceeded with his work among the sick. He seemed under no apprehension, though he must have known that his life among these treacherous demons depended on a hare, and he rattled on to his patients as if he were paying an ordinary professional visit in a quiet English family. His manner, I suppose, reacted on the men, for they behaved to him as if nothing had occurred, as if he were still ship's doctor, and they still faithful hands before the mast. "'You're doing well, my friend?' he said to the fellow with the bandaged head. "'And if ever a person had a close shave, it was you. Your head must be as hard as iron. Well, George, how goes it? You're a pretty colour, certainly. Why, your liver-man is upside down. Did you take that medicine? Did he take that medicine, men?' "'Oy, oy, sir, he took it sure enough,' returned Morgan. "'Because, you see, since I am a mutineer's doctor, or prison doctor, as I prefer to call it,' says Dr. Livesey, in his pleasantest way, "'I make it a point of honour not to lose a man for King George, God bless him, and the gallows.' The rogues looked at each other, but swallowed the home thrust in silence. "'Dick don't feel well, sir,' said one. "'Don't he?' replied the doctor. "'Well, step up here, Dick, and let me see your tongue. No, I should be surprised if he didn't. The man's tongue is fit to frighten the French. Another fever.' "'Oh, there,' said Morgan, "'that cummed of spilling Bibles.' "'That cummed, as you call it, for being arrant asses,' retorted the doctor and not having sense enough to know honest air from prison and the dry land from a vile pestiferous slough. I think it most probable, though of course it's only an opinion, that you'll all have the deuce to pay before you get that malaria out of your systems. Camp in a bog, would you? Silver, I'm surprised at you. You're less of a fool than many take you all around but you don't appear to me to have the rudiments of a notion of the rules of health. Well, he added, after he had dosed them round, and they had taken his prescriptions, with real laughable humility, more like charity school-children than blood-guilty mutineers and pirates, well, that's done for to-day, and now I should wish to have a talk with that boy, please. And he nodded his head in my direction carelessly. George Merry was at the door, spitting and spluttering over some bad-tasting medicine, but at the first word of the doctor's proposal he swung round with a deep flush, and cried, "'No!' and swore. Silver struck the barrel with his open hand. "'Silence!' he roared, and looked about him positively like a lion. "'Doctor!' he went on in his usual tones. "'I was thinking of that, knowing as though you had a fancy for the boy. We're all humbly grateful for your kindness, and as you see, puts faith in you, and takes the drugs down like that much grog. And I take it I found a whale's suit all. Oh, kids, will you give me your word of honour as a young gentleman, for a young gentleman you are, though poor-born, your word of honour not to slip your cable?' I readily gave the pledge required. "'Then, doctor,' said Silver, "'you just step outside of that stockade, and once you're there I'll bring the boy down on the inside, and I reckon you can yarn through the spars. 
Good day to you, sir, and all our duties to the squire and Captain Smollett. The explosion of disapproval, which nothing but Silver's black looks had restrained, broke out immediately the doctor had left the house. Silver was roundly accused of playing double, of trying to make a separate peace for himself, of sacrificing the interests of his accomplices and victims, and, in one word, of the identical exact thing that he was doing. It seemed to me so obvious in this case that I should not imagine how he was to turn their anger, but he was twice the man the rest were, and his last night's victory had given him a huge preponderance in their minds. He called them all the fools and dolts you can imagine, said it was necessary I should talk to the doctor, fluttered the chart in their faces, asked them if they could afford to break the treaty the very day they were bound to treasure-hunting. "'No, boy, thunder!' he cried. "'It's us must break the treaty when the time comes. Until then I'll gammon that doctor, if I have to oil his boots with brandy.' And then he bade them all get the fire lit, and stalked out upon his crutch, with his hand on my shoulder, leaving them in disarray and silenced by his volubility rather than convinced. "'Slow, lad, slow,' he said. They might round upon us in a twinkle of an eye if we were seen to hurry. Very deliberately, then, did we advance across the sand to where the doctor awaited us on the other side of the stockade, and soon as we were within easy speaking distance, Silver stopped. "'You'll make a note of this here also, doctor,' said he, "'and the boy'll tell you how our saved his life, and we're deposed for it too, you may lay to that.' "'Doctor, when a man's steering as near to the wind as me, "'playing chuck farthing with the last breath in his body like, "'you wouldn't think it too much, mayhap, to give him one good word. "'You'd please bear in mind it's not my life only now. "'It's that boy's into the bargain. "'And you'll speak me fair, doctor, "'and give me a bit of hope to go on for the sake of mercy.' Silver was a changed man, once he was out there and had his back to his friends and the blockhouse. His cheeks seemed to have fallen in, his voice trembled, never was a soul more dead in earnest. "'Why, John, you're not afraid?' asked Dr. Livesey. "'Doctor, I'm no coward, no, not I, not so much.' And he snapped his fingers. "'If I was, I wouldn't say it. But I'll own up fairly. I've had the shakes upon me for the gallows. You're a good man and a true. Never seen a better man. And you'll not forget what I done good. Not any more you'll forget the bad, I know. And I step aside, see here, and leave you and Jim alone. And you'll put that down for me, too, for it's a long stretch, it is. So saying, he stepped back a little way till he was out of earshot and there sat down upon a tree-stump and began to whistle, spinning round now and again upon his seat, so as to command a sight, sometimes of me and the doctor, and sometimes of his unruly ruffians, as they went to and fro in the sand, between the fire, which they were busy rekindling, and the house, from which they brought forth pork and bread to make the breakfast. "'So, Jim,' said the doctor sadly, "'here you are.' 
"'As you have brewed, so shall you drink, my boy. Heaven knows I cannot find it in my heart to blame you. But this much I will say, be it kind or unkind. When Captain Smollett was well, you dared not have got off, and when he was ill, and couldn't help it, by George, it was downright cowardly.' I will own that I here began to weep. "'Doctor,' I said, "'you might spare me. I have blamed myself enough, my life's forfeit anyway, and I should have been dead now if Silver hadn't stood for me. And, Doctor, believe this, I can die, and I dare say I deserve it, for what I fear is torture. If they come to torture me—' "'Jim!' the doctor interrupted, and his voice was quite changed. "'Jim, I, I can't have this. Whip over, and we'll run for it.' "'Doctor,' said I, "'I pass my word.' "'I know, I know,' he cried. "'We can't help that, Jim, now. I'll take it on my shoulders. Holus, bolus, blame and shame, my boy. But stay here, I cannot let you. Jump! One jump and you're out, and we'll run for it like antelopes.' "'No,' I replied. "'You know right well you wouldn't do the same thing yourself. Neither you nor squire nor captain, nor more will I. Silver trusted me. I passed my word, and back I go. But, doctor, you did not let me finish. If they come to torture me, I might let slip a word of where the ship is. For I got the ship, part by luck and part by risking, and she lies in the north inlet, on the southern beach, and just below high water. At half-tide she must be high and dry. "'The ship!' exclaimed the doctor. Rapidly I described to him my adventures, and he heard me out in silence. "'There's a kind of fate in this,' he observed, when I had done. "'Every step it's you that save our lives. And do you suppose by any chance that we are going to let you lose yours? That would be a poor return, my boy. You found out the plot. You found Ben Gunn, the best deed that you ever did or will do, though you live to ninety. Oh, by Jupiter! And talking of Ben Gunn, why, this is the mischief in person. Silver!' he cried. "'Silver! I'll give you a piece of advice,' he continued, as the cook drew nearer again. "'Don't you be in any great hurry after that treasure.' "'Why, sir, I do my possible, which that ain't,' said Silver. "'I can only ask in your pardon. Save my life and the boys by seeking for that treasure, and you may late to that.' "'Well, Silver,' replied the doctor, "'if that is so, I'll go one step farther.' "'Look out for squalls when you find it.' "'Sir,' said Silver, "'as between man and man, that's too much and too little. "'What you're after, why you left the blockhouse, "'why you've given me that there chart, I don't know now, do I? "'And yet I done your bidden with my eyes shut, "'and never a word of hope. "'But no, this here is too much.' "'If you won't tell me what you mean played out, just say so, and I'll leave the helm.' "'No,' said the doctor, musingly. "'I've no right to say more. It's not my secret, you see, Silver, or I give you my word I'd tell it you. But I'll go as far with you as I dare go, and not a step beyond, for I'll have my wig sorted by the captain, or I'm mistaken. And first I'll give you a bit of hope, Silver.' If we both get out alive out of this wolf-track, I'll do my best to save you, short of perjury." Silver's face was radiant. 
You couldn't say more. I'm sure, sir, not if you was my mother," he cried. "'Well, that's my first concession,' added the doctor. "'My second is a piece of advice. Keep the boy close beside you, and when you need help, halloo! I am off to seek it for you, and that itself will show you if I speak at random. Good-bye, Jim.' And Dr. Livesey shook hands with me through the stockade, nodded to Silver, and set off at a brisk pace into the wood. End of chapter 30 Chapter 31 The Treasure Hunt, Flint's Pointer "'Jim,' said Silver, when we were alone, "'if I saved your life, you saved mine, and I'll not forget it. I seen the doctor waving you to run for it, with the tail of my eye I did. And I seen you say no, as plain as herein. Jim, that's one to you. This is the first glint of hope I had since the tack failed, and I owe it to you. And now, Jim, we're to go in for this here treasure hunting, with sealed orders too, and I don't like it. And you and me must stick close, back to back, like and we'll save our necks in spite of fate and fortune." Just then a man hailed us from the fire that breakfast was ready, and we were soon seated here and there about the sand over biscuit and fried junk. They had lighted a fire fit to roast an ox, and it was now grown so hot that they could only approach it from the windward, and even there not without precaution. In the same wasteful spirit they had cooked, I suppose, three times more than we could eat, and one of them, with an empty laugh, threw what was left into the fire, which blazed and roared again over this unusual fuel. I never in my life saw men so careless of the morrow. Hand to mouth is the only word that can describe their way of doing. And what with wasted food and sleeping sentries, though they were bold enough for a brush and be done with it, I could see their entire unfitness for anything like a prolonged campaign. Even Silver, eating away with Captain Flint upon his shoulder, had not a word of blame for their recklessness. And this the more surprised me, for I thought he had never showed himself so cunning as he did then. "'Aye, mates,' said he, "'it's luck you have barbecue to think for you with this ere head. I got what I wanted, I did. Sure enough, they have the ship. Where they have it, I don't know yet. But once we at the treasure, we'll have to jump about and find. And then, mates, it's that as the boats, I reckon, as the upper hand. Thus he kept running on, with his mouth full of the hot bacon. Thus he restored their hope and confidence, and, I more than suspect, repaired his own at the same time. "'As for hostage,' he continued, "'that's my last talk, I guess, with them he loves so dear. "'I've got my piece of news, and thank you to him for that. "'But it's over and done. "'I'll take him in a lime when we go treasure-hunting, "'for we'll keep him like so much gold in case of accident you mark in the meantime. "'Once we got the ship and treasure both, and off to sea like jolly companions,' "'Well, then we'll talk Mr. Hawkins over, we will. "'We'll give him his share, to be sure, for all his kindness.' "'It was no wonder the men were in good humour now, 
For my part, I was horribly cast down. Should the scheme he now sketched prove feasible, Silver, already doubly a traitor, would not hesitate to adopt it. He had still a foot in either camp, and there was no doubt he would prefer wealth and freedom with the pirates to a bare escape from hanging, which was the best he had to hope on our side. Nay, and even if things fell out that he was forced to keep his faith with Dr. Livesey, even then what danger lay before us! What a moment that would be when the suspicions of his followers turned to certainty, and he and I should have to fight for dear life! He a cripple, and I a boy, against five strong and active seamen! Add to this double apprehension the mystery that still hung over the behaviour of my friends their unexplained desertion of the stockade, their inexplicable session of the chart, or, harder still to understand, the doctor's last warning to Silver, look out for squalls when you find it, and you will readily believe how little taste I found in my breakfast, and with how uneasy a heart I set forth behind my captors on the quest for treasure. We made a curious figure, had any one been there to see us, all in soiled sailor-clothes, and all but me armed to the teeth. Silver had two guns slung about him, one before and one behind, besides the great cutlass at his waist, and a pistol in each pocket of his square-tailed coat. To complete his strange appearance, Captain Flint sat perched upon his shoulder, and gabbled odds and ends of purposeless sea-talk. I had a line about my waist, and followed obediently after the sea-cook, who held the loose end of the rope, now in his free hand, now between his powerful teeth. For all the world I was led like a dancing bear. The other men were variously burdened, some carrying picks and shovels, for that had been the very first necessary they brought ashore from the Hispaniola, others laden with pork, bread, and brandy for the midday meal. All the stores, I observed, came from our stock. I could see the truth of Silver's words the night before. Had he not struck a bargain with the doctor, he and his mutineers deserted by the ship must have been driven to subsist on clear water and the proceeds of their hunting. Water would have been little to their taste. A sailor is not usually a good shot, and besides all that, when they were so short of eatables, it was not likely they would be very flush of powder. Well, thus equipped, we all set out, even the fellow with the broken head, who should certainly have kept in shadow, and straggled one after another to the beach, where the two gigs awaited us. Even these bore trace of the drunken folly of the pirates, one in a broken thwart, and both in their muddied and unbailed condition. Both were to be carried along with us for the sake of safety, and so, with our numbers divided between them, we set forth upon the bosom of the anchorage. As we pulled across there was some discussion on the chart. The Red Cross was, of course, far too large to be a guide, and the terms of the note on the back, as you will hear, admitted of some ambiguity. They ran, the reader may remember, thus. Tall tree, spyglass shoulder, bearing a point to the N of NNE, Skeleton Island, E, S, E, and by E, ten feet. A tall tree was thus the principal mark. 
Now, right before us, the anchorage was bounded by a plateau from two to three hundred feet high, adjoining on the north and sloping southern shoulder of the spyglass, and rising again toward the south, into the rough, cliffy eminence called the Mizzenmast Hill. The top of the plateau was dotted thickly with pine trees of varying height. Here and there one of a different species rose forty or fifty feet clear above its neighbours, and which of these was the particular tall tree of Captain Flint could only be decided on the spot and by the readings of the compass. Yet, although that was the case, every man on board the boats had picked a favourite of his own ere we were halfway over, Long John alone shrugging his shoulders and bidding them wait till they were there. We pulled easily, by Silver's directions, not to weary the hands prematurely, and, after quite a long passage, landed at the mouth of the second river, that which runs down a woody cleft of the spyglass. Thence, bending to our left, we began to ascend the slope towards the plateau. At the very outset, heavy, miry ground and a matted marsh vegetation greatly delayed our progress. But by little and little the hill began to steepen, and become stony underfoot, and the wood to change its character and to grow in a more open order. It was, indeed, a most pleasant portion of the island that we were now approaching. A heavy-scented broom and many flowering shrubs had almost taken the place of grass. Thickets of green nutmeg trees were dotted here and there, with the red columns and the broad shadow of the pines, and the first mingled their spice with the aroma of the others. The air, besides, was fresh and stirring, and this, under the sheer sunbeams, was a wonderful refreshment to our senses. The party spread itself abroad in a fan shape, shouting and leaping to and fro. About the centre, and a good way behind the rest, Silver and I followed, I tethered by my rope, he ploughing with deep pants among the sliding gravel. From time to time, indeed, I had to lend him a hand, or he must have missed his footing and fallen backward down the hill. We had thus proceeded for about half a mile, and were approaching the brow of the plateau, when the man upon the farthest left began to cry aloud as if in terror. Shout after shout came from him, and the others began to run in his direction. "'He can't have found the treasure,' said old Morgan, hurrying past us from the right, "'for that's clean atop.' Indeed, as we found when we also reached the spot, it was something very different. At the foot of a pretty big pine, and involved in deep creeper, which had even partly lifted some of the smaller bones, a human skeleton lay with a few shreds of clothing on the ground. I believe a chill struck for a moment to every heart. "'He was a seaman,' said George Merry, who, bolder than the rest, had gone up close and was examining the rags of clothing. "'Leastways.' This is good sea-cloth. Ay, ay, said Silver. Like enough you wouldn't look to find a bishop here, I reckon. But what sort of a way is that for bones to lie? Taint in nature. Indeed, on a second glance, it seemed impossible to fancy that the body was in a natural position. But for some disarray, the work, perhaps, of the birds that had fed upon him, or the slow-growing creeper that had gradually enveloped his remains, 
The man lay perfectly straight, his feet pointing in one direction, his hands raised above his head like a diver's, pointing directly in the opposite. "'I've taken a notion into my old numbskull,' observed Silver. "'Here's the compass. There's the tip-top point of Skeleton Island sticking out like a tooth. Just take a bearing, will you, along the line of them bones?' It was done. The body pointed straight in the direction of the island, and the compass read duly, east-south-east by east. "'I thought so,' cried the cook. "'This here is a pointer. Right up there is our line for the pole star and the jolly dollars. But by thunder if it don't make me cold inside to think of Flint. This is one of his jokes and no mistake. Him and these six was alone here. He killed em every man. And this one he hauled here and laid down by the compass, shiver my timbers. Their long bones and the hair's been yellow. Aye, that would be Allardyce. You mind Allardyce, Tom Morgan? Aye, aye, returned Morgan. I mind him. He owed me money, he did, and he took my knife ashore with him. Speaking of knives, said another, why don't we find isn't lying around? Flint weren't the man to pick a seaman's pocket, and the birds, I guess, would leave it be. By the purrs, and that's true, cried Silver. There ain't a thing left here, said Mary, still feeling round among the bones. Not a copper Dwight, nor a backy-box. It don't look natural to me. No, boy, gum, it don't, agreed Silver. Not natural, nor not nice, says you. Great guns, messmates. But if Flint was living, this would be a hot spot for you and me. Six they were, and six are we, and bones is what they are now. I saw him dead with these ere deadlights, said Morgan. Billy took me in. There he laid with penny pieces on his eyes. Dead? Ay, sure enough he's dead and gone below, said the fellow with the bandage. But if ever spirit walked it would be Flint's dear heart, but he died bad, did Flint. Ay, that he did, observed another. Now he raged, and now he hollered for the rum, and now he sang fifteen men were his only song, mates. And I tell you true, I never rightly liked to hear it since. It was May not and the windy was open, and I hear that old song a-coming out as clear as clear, and the death-hall on the man already. "'Come, come,' said Silver, "'stole this talk. He's dead and he don't walk, that I know. Least the ways he won't walk by day, and you may later that. Care killed a cat. Fetch a head for the doubloons.' We started, certainly, but in spite of the hot sun and the staring daylight, the pirates no longer ran separate and shouting through the wood, but kept side by side and spoke with bated breath. The terror of the dead buccaneer had fallen on their spirits. End of chapter 31 Okay, so we got our pirate pointer, right? 
Okay, that's creepy. And by the way, there are plenty of sites on online who I guess just didn't read very closely. But the pirate body is stretched out so that the hands are together like a diver pointing towards the direction that they're supposed to be going in relation to the compass point. It is not just like one hand extended, like go that away. It is clearly manipulated. There is no way anyone is going to die in this position. That's the point. This is completely unnatural. And it should be creepy. And maybe it's not quite so creepy to we modern people. But if you were 13 and reading this in 1890, it might creep you out a bit. And at this point, you might insist that your father continue to read to you at night so that you can just get past that chapter and not have to go to sleep with that image in your head. And I'm not gonna. I'm gonna withhold. (laughs) You're just gonna have to wait until next episode before you know what's going on with the body pointer. I thought it was also interesting that the guys are like, hey, where's his knife? I mean, Flint was a bad guy, but he wouldn't, he wouldn't defile, he wouldn't defile the body by stealing off of it. He wouldn't pickpocket a corpse. Like, okay, well, that's, you know, there, there are rules even among the pirates, rules that go beyond the, they're more like guidelines. There are actual rule rules, even for Flint, which also kind of surprised me, but that's fine. So going back to the beginning, Dr. Livesey shows up. Amen. Hallelujah. Livesey is there. This is great, except Jim is trapped on the other side and he can't get away. Silver has a bit of a to-do to convince the rest of his pirate buddies that they shouldn't kill Jim, that he's more valuable as a hostage, and that he should be allowed to talk to Livesey. Now, I've spent a lot of time trying to figure out Long John Silver. I'm probably going to continue doing that for the rest of my life. But in this moment, the place where I've come to, and trust me when I say you could have a completely different point of view, and if you wrote to me tomorrow, I'd say, yeah, that's where I am when I woke up this morning too. It keeps changing, which is kind of the cool point of Long John Silver. But my my decision right now is that Long John Silver can probably argue his way out of anything. If he had had a different upbringing, he might have been a lawyer and a very good one. But for now, he knows he needs Jim. And especially once he sees Livesey, he really knows he needs Jim. But he also needs information because he doesn't know why Livesey and Smollett and Trelawney gave him the map. They agree to a truce. They handed over the map. Something's going on. He's trying to figure it out. Best case scenario, he can overhear, lip read, get some hint from body language. I don't know. But he's hoping to get something out of this for himself. Information is currency. And I, I thought it was a lovely description of him sitting, sitting on the stump, kind of, you know, just twiddling his thumbs, just trying to look like he's not paying any attention, and then turning around and looking at the pirates, and then, you know, kind of swinging back and looking again. And, and he did overhear Jim say, I can't run. I gave my word. And that, to me, is the final test. Because Livesey is the one who caves and says, it'll be on me. Just do it. Just do it. Just break. Just run. Don't worry about your eternal soul. Don't worry about basically breaking an oath. Just get out of there. And Jim says, no, he's going to own what he did. He screwed up and he's going to take it like a man. 
which is kind of impressive because he seems to be, the further this goes on, he seems to be quite aware of what the risks are. But they're not the risks that you think they are, and they're not the risks that Livesey thinks they are either. When Jim starts to cry and <laughs> and says, you know, I, I did this and, and I'm so sorry and I all of this stuff and, and Livesey stops him. Later, he has to go back and say, but you didn't let me finish. If they torture me, I might tell them where the ship is. <laughs> it's not, I'm afraid of torture because, ow. It's, I'm afraid of torture because I don't want to cave like a house of cards and blow your chances of getting off the island. That is a very different stance from what you would expect from any 13-year-old. Heck, any anyone at all. That's a pretty adult thing to go with. And of course, this puts Livesey in an interesting position because he has now shown Jim his hand in that I would be willing to do whatever it takes, including break an oath in order to save your life. Now he realizes Jim is not going to come with him, which means Jim's life is 100% in Silver's hands. So how can he do something, anything to try and guarantee Jim's safety? So he gives Silver another piece of currency that Silver so desperately wants and needs. Beware sudden squalls. These are the sealed orders. He's not going to say more. He says, I'll, I'll go a step and then a step further, past the bounds of what I should have done in the first place, which is a really neat way of saying, I'm, I'm out on a limb here for you. And I'm willing to go even a little bit further out onto that very, very dangerous limb for you. And I think the understanding is pretty clear there for both of them that this is really all about Jim and keeping Jim safe. And so when Silver says things to Jim like, you know, oh, if I were young and we were, we were together, oh, the fun we'd have. There's part of me that thinks that that's not, that's not a posture. That's not a lie. That Silver, Silver contains multitudes. He's a really interesting character. And we haven't even seen the last of it. So last thing to let you know, going back to Tara, I wanted to make sure you knew that your book of Shakespeare that was sent to Thing 2, lo, those many years ago, is part of what made him absolutely decide to audition for Much Ado About Nothing that they're doing at school. And as a sophomore, he got the incredibly rare honor of being given a speaking part. I can't even remember if I told you guys this or not. It's been so long since last time I recorded. He is Conrad. He is one of Don John's bad guys. He's the rich and snooty one, which, I mean, I don't want to say it in front of him, but it was great casting. <laughs> it's going to be fun. I will try and post pictures if I'm allowed to, allowed by him, allowed to, from uh, from the show. They're doing it like it's a college thing. So instead of coming back from the war, they're coming back from a game. And they're kind of fraternity guys. So it's going to be interesting seeing how that works. I'm not, I'm not sold yet. I'm also not saying it won't work. She's pulled off Stranger Things this director. I think that's everything. Have a great week. I will talk to you soon. Now that the computer's working, it shouldn't be so long. Take care. Bye. If you like what you heard, please leave us a review at iTunes or like us on Facebook or follow us on Twitter or any one of a million different places that Craftlet wound up over the last 13 years. For more information on Craftlet, you can visit craftlit.com and subscribe via your favorite podcast app or download the Craftlet app 
so you can get all of your episodes right there in your hand, all in one place, without having to hassle with anything else. So you can be sure not to miss any of Treasure Island. And remember, if your hands are too busy to pick up a book, at least you can turn one on. Thanks. Thanks.